Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. If you've had a chance to listen to our last episode, you know that I'm up to my nose hairs in beautiful, smoky Isla Scotch with my spirit guide, Adam Saphir, of the DC Isla Scotch Society. If you haven't checked out that episode, I'd recommend it. We cover a ton of useful information about the single malt scotch category and the region of Isla that will help you kind of follow along with our evaluations and tasting notes as we continue through in this part two. So if you're a little behind, check out the last episode and get up to speed. But otherwise, let's get you all fueled up for the second half of this fascinating interview and tasting. This week's featured cocktail is the Godfather cocktail. As with so many Scotch cocktails, the point of the Godfather is to kind of enhance the flavor of the Scotch with one simple added ingredient. In this case, a sweet liqueur called Amaretto. To make this drink, you'll need two ounces of Scotch whiskey. Again, you can go with a blended product, but I like using a single malt whenever I can. And then you'll also need a half an ounce to three quarters of an ounce of amaretto liqueur, which you should dial to the correct level for your personal flavor preferences. This cocktail is so simple that you could certainly build it right in the glass and just give it a quick stir, but for the purposes of optimal dilution, I'd recommend combining all the ingredients in a mixing glass with ice, stirring for about 15 to 20 seconds, and straining into a rocks glass over a single large cube. Now, Let's talk about amaretto for a minute. If you look at the word, it's got the same base as another liquid that we like to use in cocktails, amaro. But amaretto is not nearly as bitter. In fact, the suffix of the word, etto, is an Italian diminutive, meaning little. So roughly translated, amaretto means little bitter. It's made using either almonds or the pits of stone fruit like apricots. And if this sounds familiar, it's because maraschino liqueur, another popular cocktail ingredient, is made in much the same way, but using the pits of the marasca cherry. One final warning, if you do a little research on the Godfather cocktail recipe, you'll notice that pretty much every recipe on the first page of the Google search results has a different ratio of whiskey to amaretto. Some call for two ounces of whiskey and one eighth of an ounce of amaretto, which is a 16 to one ratio, rather uncommon in the cocktail world. And some recipes call for a one to one ratio, equal parts of each ingredient. With such an absurd amount of variation, the recipe we have over on the show notes page reflects what normal people with normal palates would expect in a balanced cocktail. But hey, if you're the kind of lunatic who wants to ruin your whiskey with an ounce and a half of amaretto, go for it. Just don't offer me any. And with that, let's get back to the continuation of our spirited tour of Isla with Scotch enthusiast Adam Saphir. Some of the things he and I discuss in this episode include how a new distillery has changed the Isla landscape for the first time in over a hundred years. 
why non-age statement whiskeys may be on the rise, and how to approach bottles that don't have age statements. A bit of discussion about various barrel finishes, including rum and sherry casks. How to decide when a particular bottle isn't living up to its potential. What language you need to learn if you want to know who adds caramel coloring to their scotch whiskey, and much, much more. Head on over to the show notes page for this episode to find a list of all the expressions we taste and discuss. And I will add that we're actually going to host that list fully on the show notes page for the previous episode, since that's where we started the list. So for this episode, number 94, you'll find our featured cocktail, an abridged list of the bottles we nose and taste, and of course, the lightning round answers, but you can find all the kind of nitty gritty information like PPM and aging specs over on the catalog we created on the show notes page for the previous episode, which is number 93. So head there if you want to nerd out on all the little details. And with that, I do hope you enjoy part two of this fascinating liquid tour of Isla guided by Adam Safir of the DC Isla Scotch Society. If we go across the island, we could go to Kilhoman. And Kilhoman is a whiskey and a distillery that I'm a huge fan of, particularly when you see what a struggle some of the startups in the United States are having in terms of getting things right. And and I'm, I'm not, I don't want to say anything bad about anyone because I love Whistlepig and I also love Smooth Ambler. But those are two distilleries that I think have had uh, a little bit of um, some fits and spurts in terms of transitioning from what is a phenomenon in the United States of sourcing whiskey and being very artistic about what barrels you're picking and how you're blending those barrels and putting out a source product that's excellent, transitioning then over to putting out your own product. So Smooth Ambler put out recently Big Level, which I think is their, their one of their first, you know, fully their own products. And to me, it was a little bit of a different experience than Old Scout or some of the right. other products that they put out beforehand. Uh, Farm Stock from Whistlepig has been sort of a similar experience where the old world cask finish products that they put out that were a blend, I think, of MGP and Alberta distillers were really excellent. But then, you know, in putting out their own product, it's taken them a little bit of time to kind of get it right. Kilhoman, on the other hand, I think hit it out of the park to start. And they are a family-owned distillery. As I mentioned, their production capacity is maybe 200,000, so much smaller. But mm-hmm. they have an incredible lineup for what they have. They also, like Brooklady, have an Isla focus, and they also tend to experiment a little bit with the wine finishes and other different barrels that they use. This is one of their two core expressions. Seneg is a complement to Macker Bay. Macker Bay is a little bit heavier on the bourbon. Uh, Seneg is a little bit heavier on the sherry. Mm-hmm. And overall, it's, it's, it's well-constructed and delicious. So let's uh, yeah, pour let's try this. I believe I could be wrong here. So Thad Vogler, please don't come beat me up or something if I'm wrong. But in his recent book by the smoke and the smell, I believe he featured Kilhoman is one of the chapters because it was definitely one of the newest distilleries out there. And mm-hmm. I think based on the way that you're describing, I, th- I believe that chapter was was on Kilhoman. So definitely worth a read. Uh, gives a good little snapshot of uh, of Isla itself, a little bit of yeah. the geography, and it, it does good work to place some of these newer smaller startups 
in contrast to some of these much larger operations. Yeah, uh, the, yeah, absolutely. The Diageos. And for, for folks who don't know what Diageo is or Beam Suntory, these are basically the giant conglomerates that own probably about 80% of the spirits on the shelf at, at a given yeah. store or more. Uh, it depends on the, the variety and the, that store's focus on local or craft, but they own pretty much everybody and they, they yeah. want to own everybody. So with that comes certain things, comes resources, it comes marketing, it comes right. with you know, the opportunity to scale things like distribution. Sure. On the other hand, you know, it, it can come with uh, some some other sacrifices that, that smaller operations don't have to make. So let's let's taste this Kilhoman knowing that they're one of these smaller kind of upstarts. Yeah, so with Kilhoman, I, I always get a little bit of a, of a grassy note. I was gonna say, hey, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's and, and you know, they're very, they put a lot of emphasis on the barley. They put a lot of emphasis on the Isla aspects of the production. Because they're smaller, I think they can pay more attention to certain aspects of the process. Now, they they are family-owned, but as a startup, they had Jim Swan on as a consultant and as, a, as heavily involved in the distillery. And so that was something that I think helped them along. They do a long fermentation, which is uh, somewhat different than the other distilleries. And they peat to about 40 ppm. They're, with this particular expression, it's, it's uh, a little bit uh, heavier on the sherry berry, uh, barrel maturation. So you're going to detect um, some differences there compared to the Lagavulin, which was, I think, all ex-bourbon. Yeah, I definitely get the smoke in this one on the palate. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty well balanced. And one of the things that I've, I forgot to mention earlier when we were talking about that that peating process and and the just like how the smoke gets infused into the 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 product, think of it almost the same way as if you're smoking a piece of meat, right? So you've got you know your mesquite chips or your hickory chips or whatever chips, which is kind of like the differences between the various types of peats that are sourced, or the the different makeups. So, you know, you want to make your mesquite smoked brisket or you want to make your hickory smoked pork ribs or whatever it is. So you make those decisions based on the end product that you want. You put the chips in a place, not like in direct contact with the malt, but like kind of in a place where they're adjacent and that smoke can then permeate. And that's kind of oh, yeah. kind of a similar process, you know. Yeah. Um, so for folks who just have no idea what we're talking about, it's kind of think of it like smoking meat, except you're smoking whiskey ingredients. And so now another note about the, the sherry maturation here, which to me is very interesting, is that even as we talk about the clustering of whiskeys into ex-bourbon and into ex-sherry, you'll then have further uh, a tree that starts to separate further into you have your Oloroso and you have your Pedro Jimenez. Is this Oloroso? This is Oloroso. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of Oloroso finished whiskeys or Oloroso aged whiskeys. Whereas PX, I don't really like it all. And I'll taste the whiskey and say, you know, I don't like this. I taste all Oloroso. I like this. Yeah. And and to have that kind of distinctiveness between those two subcategories of the larger category of sherry, uh, just in the maturation of the whiskey spirit, I think says a lot about the influence that it has. Definitely does. Definitely does. And, and those, those barrels are going to have very different fingerprints. And then there's other much drier types. I, I mean, I... I still have not tasted scotch uh, that was aged in Amontillado sherry barrels. I know they exist, yeah, um, but yeah. they're definitely a much rarer. Yeah, Dalwini is one. The mm -hmm. Dalwini uh, Distillers Edition is Amontillado. Yes. 
And so what we did, which is one of the, this was an offshoot of the Isle of Scotch Society, we did a tasting that is one of the favorite, my most favorite tastings I've ever attended, which was we had seven or eight whiskeys that had been matured in different types of sherry barrels, and then those sherries along with it. So we oh, had the Amontillado, awesome. and we had the Fino, and we had the Palo Cortado, and then we had the um, Oloroso, and we had the PX, and I think we had a cream sherry. Oh, wow. And, and so all you the, hit literally all the sherries. We, we tried to. <laughs> I don't know if we hit them all, but we, we sure tried. And, and it was very interesting to see what elements you could pick up out of the sherry and out of the sherry matured spirit that had that sort of commonality or that sort of closest in terms of um, what, what the, how they were connected. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll see barrel finishing done with other stuff as well. Usually port, port uh, ruby port or tawny port tend to be the other kind of culprits in yeah. that conversation. And yeah, it's always it's always interesting because I feel like here in the U.S., the fortified wines that we drink tend to, I don't know, they tend to be used in cocktails very often. I mean, you don't see too port used in cocktails. I guess my point is we're drinking less port and sherry. We've got a lot of vermouth in our cocktails, but you don't see too, too many people just sitting around sipping port. Right. So it's, or, or sherry for that matter, although yeah. there are sherry drinkers out there. For sure. So it's kind of a cultural blind spot for us here in the U.S., right. Because we love those barrel finishes, but right. we, I think less of the focus tends to be on the actual juice that creates those barrels. So that's a really, I love hearing all of the little experiments you've found to run. Because right. there seems to be no no shortage of experiments no, when it comes to no. comparisons. There's so many variables and there's so many variations that uh, there's always something interesting to do in that regard. Uh, what, what's interesting to me about the sherry also is that there aren't enough sherry drinkers. And so what happens is you have the sherry seasoning, which it's not actually a sherry, but it's the barrels are being seasoned and then the liquid is being shipped off. And yeah, I don't know what happens to it from that point, but McAllen and Highland Park are sort of big in that area in terms of using those seasoned casts. Yeah. And there, there's a lot of blind spots where we are deliberately being kept, you know, a little bit in the dark as consumers. And I think that kind of goes back to that little dilemma that we were mentioning earlier of like, ah, our demand has kind of put uh, producers in a bit of a pickle. Yeah. So they need to do a little bit of fancy footwork. And it's ultimately for our benefit, although if the magician's curtain was uh, pulled back, I don't think we would view it that way. Well, no. And, you know, it's it's this again is, is something that fascinates me about the whiskey process is that most of the whiskey enthusiasts that that I know are intensely interested in the makeup of the whiskey that they're drinking. They want to know all the ingredients. They want to know everything about the production. How was it made? How long was the cut, etc. But at the end of the day, if it's something that you like, if it's something that you enjoy, that's all that matters. Yep. And so how do you sort of balance those two aspects of the process, particularly when you have a spirit that maybe has caramel coloring and yep. maybe it was chill filtered uh, and maybe there were all these other things. Maybe it's a non-age-stated whiskey, but it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. You can get yourself as wound up as you want to get. Right. Right. But is it good whiskey? Yeah. Yeah. So for our next one, I think let's take a, a second detour. And instead of the Ardbeg Ugarau or the... I think I have a Ardbeg Dark Cove. Let's take the latest release of Ardbeg. Beautiful. Adam's just going to go run and grab that. So while he's doing that, I will mention that we're going to put a 
on the show notes page a list of all the stuff that we we drank and that we we tasted here tonight. This is like a little slight audible, so I'm gonna follow up with Adam via email. We'll make sure that we get this list for you. So if you do decide that you want to join us as we taste through one or more of these marks and see if what we're getting is similar to what you get, then uh, you know, feel free. We'll, we'll give you the resources to do that over on the show notes page, which you can always find at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. And I believe this is going to be an episode in the early 90s. So you can uh, just search for Adam Safir. We can get all those details to you so that you can check it out alongside us. But we've got, so this is the Ardbeg, which is another one of those like really iodine kind of briny uh, distilleries, I think. Yeah. So Ardbeg traditionally is known as one of the brinier, more medicinal, more iodine, mm-hmm. more uh, salinity spirits that that are put out by the distillery on isla what's interesting about ardbeg is in my opinion they seem to have escaped a lot of the criticism of non-age dated whiskeys now there are critics of ardbeg out there because they have the heavy marketing and they have the heavy promotion of non-age dated whiskeys but people go nuts for their annual release that's centered around in uh, ardbeg day and they have a what's called a committee release, which is typically a higher ABV. And then they have a general release or limited edition that is a lower ABV and, and maybe more available. This is the committee release of the Ardbeg drum. And sure enough, shortly after it was released, it pretty much flew off the shelves and there isn't much to be found anymore. Uh, very similar to what happened with Dark Cove, what happened with Kelpie, uh, what happened with some of that Perpetuum didn't do as well. I don't know why. But they, they pretty much have had all winners. So what's distinctive about Ardbeg Drum is that it is uh, your typical Ardbeg that is from ex bourbon cast, but it has also been matured in ex rum, and so it has a little bit of a sweeter note mixed mm. in with that brine or with mixed in with that uh, peat that you're more familiar with. Yeah. And you'll see that it's um, you know it's a very light. It light is very spirit. light. Yeah. There's definitely no caramel in here. Well, you can't be too sure of that. My <laughs> understanding is that Ardbeg 10, which is even lighter in color than this, is in fact colored. Ah. And the reason for that, again, is they want to have that sort of consistency. Sure. But are they making it more transparent? I don't know. Yeah. Quality control method, right? Right. Uh, which, especially in non-age statement whiskeys, right? Yeah. Like there's, like if you are kind of opening yourself up for an inherently less controlled process with less rules. It's almost from like a manufacturing perspective, maybe not a bad idea to insert some like some aspect of the process to, to at least give, give a little bit more control or uh, consistency to the end product, even if it's kind of artificial. Yeah, absolutely. So with this on the nose, you know, I'm a, I'm a big nose guy because I smoked cigarettes for years and I, I feel like that wrecked my palate. And so my nose is the more sensitive uh, part of the experience for me. But it, it I, I definitely get more of a sort of a coastal note. Uh, I get more of what I would imagine to be sea spray. Sure. I also get like a bit of a Guyanese kind of uh, like you get some of that Demerara smell. Oh, I don't know right. what kind of rum it was. I don't know. Do you have any information on like the type of rum barrels that were used for this? Uh, as is typical of Ardbeg, they narrowed it down to rum casts from the Americas. Okay. So that's a... It's something. <laughs> right. Something. Right. But yeah, I get that very... Um, see, I love rum. 
I'm like sure. rum is probably one of the most exciting categories out there for me. Yeah, it's um, it's it's fascinating, and I, you know, I'm just getting into rum and Foursquare and you know all the other, um, you know, the Samarolis that that have been put out. This reminds me a great deal of the the Lost Spirits rum that I tasted when when we did our interview with Brian Davis. Their their Navy Strength. Oh, okay. This reminds me not not their not their super funky one, but their more. They modeled it off of a Guyanese um, style rum, and so this is the nose is very, very distinct and similar to that. It, it is, and it, and if you put your nose just over the rim of the Glencairn and you let it just kind of waft, waft in, it's it's this is one of my favorite parts of the whiskey experience is just nosing it and yeah. just sort of picking up those different pieces of of the uh, of, of the spirit through the nose, and it's this is the type of peat. That this is a type of peat experience that I most closely associate with in terms of a very positive kind of uh, taste. Yeah, our our in general is, um, you know, so their production capacity is around 1.2 million liters, and so they're kind of in the middle of that, uh, yeah, more along the median lines than the mean, but of that smaller scale uh, Kilhoman 200,000 liters versus the Kulila, which is up at 3 million, and Lafroig, which is up at 2.6 million. Right. But they seem to have um, a really heavy market share, uh, at least in the United States. Uh, the Ardbeg 10 is just a classic example of a great, great whiskey, $45, always available. Everybody, you know, it's universally loved among those who like Pete. Right. And this is... Man, this is like a, this is to me like a dessert scotch. Oh, okay. Which which you're gonna get with those with with anything that comes out of a rum barrel or a PX barrel. It tends to. So are you are you getting dessert-y. some sweetness off this? I'm definitely getting some sweetness, like both on the nose and the palate. This is a very consistent experience for me. Whereas some of the others that we've had, mm-hmm. it's been like a, you know, the nose has been compelling in one way and the palate is compelling like the octomore like like I, you couldn't get a more different nose and palate oh interesting for, for me but you and feel like this is more integrated this is this this is definitely much more interesting than the uh, the blend that we had the the great king street this yeah. is much more interesting yeah i think so too but it's it's similar in how consistent it is between for me between the nose and the palate you definitely get a little bit more of the peat on the palate, a little bit of that saltiness, but for me, it's it's fairly consistent. Like it follows through pretty logically. Like there's a to me, there's a, a logic in in this experience that's like, yeah, this is kind of comfort. That's why I get the, sure. I think I get the desserty yeah. aspect because this is very comforting to me. I think so too. Now, two questions for you. One, being someone who appreciates rum, do you think that you could come into this glass? And without knowing what expression it was or what the production of the expression was, be able to detect a rum-like quality to it. I think I could. But I, do, I think that's because like, I had a very specific rum experience in mind. Like When I smelled this, I went back to that weird room oh, yeah. with Brian Davis. That's immediately where I went. Now, you had told me it was rum before that, but, but as soon as I smelled it, I went, I went there. So maybe if it was a different rum... I might not like I couldn't say that I can pick out rum across the board because that's probably universally false. Right. But for this, I definitely picked that out. And I think it's just because it was just such a very specific memory for me. But I try. I mean, that's what practice is there for. Right. Yeah. 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 So. <laughs> that is. So the second question is, 
given now that you're four or five deep into the, the, the tasting order, all related to Isla or connected to Isla in some way, do you think that you're getting a sense that there's a distinct Isla signature or are these all different in interesting ways that kind of separate them out in, in a manner that you wouldn't necessarily be able to recognize them as Isla off the bat? That's interesting. I think more toward the second option. I think there's still a fingerprint. Yeah. Uh, the fingerprint is unmistakable. If you had me tasting these next to something from the lowlands or something like that, just like absolutely sure. apples and oranges. Yeah, yeah. Especially like an Akintoshin that has almost, you know, solid neutrality. Sure. Uh, and I, I mean, and especially like going even further, like comparing it to a blended scotch, it's like not only is are these unmistakably single malts, they are also very distinctly smoky, yeah. peaty, kind of briny in many cases. Now, there there are some departures from there. Are some that there's definitely a spectrum. So what I think I'm appreciating more with the side by side tasting is the spectrum. Yeah. Because I'm a Lafroy Ten guy. Oh, okay. I'm making okay. I'm making cocktails and drinking Lafroy Ten all the time, and for me, it's like it's like that bombastic, just like unmistakable, really intense salt, really intense smoke. Yeah. But for from what we're seeing here, we're getting a lot more of the fruit, a lot more of the the maturation too. It's yeah. really really interesting to me. Yeah. And you know, if you look at our big drum, which we're tasting right now, because it's a non-age dated whiskey. When you talk about maturation, I would have to guess that it's in the range of six to eight, maybe eight to ten, but I, I would guess six to eight. And so to me, because I love this expression so much, it's yeah. an example of what distilleries can do with young spirit and still make it intensely enjoyable. I find, and I don't know why this is the case, I find that I enjoy odd age statements, odd years, so 11, 15, 17, 21 over even year age statements don't know why that's just been a thing that has been interesting to me in the past yeah. and then i also really like non-age statement stuff because it's almost like it almost demonstrates tells you something right off the bat it tells you that they are doing something very specific sure and the question like the open question with a non-age statement whiskey for me isn't is this as consistently good as all the age statements have been up until this point. The question, open question is, can you dig it? Yeah, right. And maybe sometimes you can, that's fine. But like, I like that question. That's a more appealing question or more interesting question to me than like, well, how does the 12 compare to the 16? Right. How does right. the Johnny Walker red compare to the blue? Yeah. It's still an interesting question, especially if you're starting out. But especially because I think we're going to be seeing more non-age statements with some yeah. of the dilemmas. You're right. I like the, I'm excited about that. I'm not disappointed by that. Cause, no, me either. Because can you dig it is a great <clears throat> question. And it's also important to remember that when you're talking about age-stated whiskeys or age-stated scotches, you're still talking about something that you really have no idea what's in the bottle. So if you look at, for example, we have a Lagavulin in 16 here. Mm -hmm. This is not a 16-year-old whiskey. This is a whiskey that's a blend of several different ages right. that's been blended for consistency to line up align with the Lagavulin 16 line. It has probably a lot of 16-year-old whiskey in it, but also 
18-year-old, also 20-year-old, mm-hmm. maybe even some 25-year-old whiskey in it. Yep. And that's something that I think most people or many people outside of the whiskey community don't recognize. So 16 is the, the age of the youngest whiskey. It's the age of the youngest whiskey in the bottle. Right. And there's a product out there called Blue Hanger, which is a blended whiskey of several different ages. But when you look at the component parts, if you put an age statement on it, it would be something like a seven-year-old because the age of the youngest whiskey in that bottle is seven. Right. But if you look at the volume-weighted age of how that, that blend was made up of so many barrels of 20-year-old whiskey and so many barrels of 15-year-old whiskey and so many barrels of seven-year-old, the volume-weighted age is actually 15 or 16. Yep. And, and that's something also that most people don't don't really realize so you know the 16 is helpful from a quality uh indicator standpoint that you know that at least here's the floor the floor sure. is 16 but you don't know much beyond that right and there's there's interesting things being done especially in like the american single malt uh like one great mm-hmm. example that i really like and i don't think this is a compliment so i don't think they'll they'll be uh, mad about me saying this but virginia distillery company sure they, they make single malts and yeah. they're sourcing single malt from from scotland right but they're incorporating their new make into it. Yeah. And so I think that's a really creative way to respond to the that startup dilemma, right? Like, all right, we're a new distillery. God, I want to put out an eight-year. I want to put out a 10-year. I want to put out a 12-year. Unfortunately, that is physically impossible. Right. So they're adding to the conversation by adding their new make to source whiskey. And I love just how creative a solution that is to the dilemma. And, and I, I like that it, it, it makes eye contact with the consumer and says, hey, we're sourcing some stuff, but we're still adding to the conversation. So if you're willing to get on board with us, come check this out while we work on our barrels. Yeah, and everything that I've had from them, from the cider to mm-hmm. uh, everything else, uh, has been really top-notch. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited to see what they're doing. And, and Virginia, in general, has a, a number of distilleries that are doing some really interesting stuff. So yeah. it's great to see. There's some misses as well, but you know that's going to happen. Yeah, that's okay. That's good. <laughs> so what's next on tap? Just kind of scanning what we have. And I think um, one that would be useful just to try is the Kilhome and Macker Bay, okay. um, which is the counterpart to the Seneg. It's part of the core lineup of Kilhoman. It is heavier on the ex-bourbon barrels than it is on the sherry. So it's going to be a little bit different from that standpoint. Yeah. And was the Seneg, was this the Oloroso? The Seneg, I don't know what type of sherry it is. I'm guessing it is Oloroso. So they, and with the Seneg, they do on the bottle here specify non-chill filtered and natural color. So sometimes, not always, are you going to see those uh, called out on the label. But, uh, you know, obviously that's one of those little decisions that oh. they're making to kind of uh, appeal to a very specific audience. Yes. So to just address those two points, the Seneg uh, is uh, Oloroso Sherry Cask, and you will see labels that say non-chill filtered and natural color, but you will not see labels that say chill filtered and caramel. Right. Unless you're in Germany, where it, by law, the ingredients of the product need to be specified oh, that's on the awesome. barrel. And so what what hardcore whiskey enthusiasts will do is they will go to German online shops and they will look up 
the bottles and they will bring up the labels. That is fantastic. And they will Google Translate what the, it says mit mit i know is with in german and yeah and, and they'll figure out what you know so there's the the expression for with caramel or without caramel that it'll have the germans right 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 they're very particular about what yes goes in there. hey that i'm fine i love that i think that's probably the the coolest fact i've learned tonight great yeah, yeah that's, that's awesome yeah so let me pour a little bit of the macrobay beautiful and so what you'll see on this is it'll probably be a little less sweet than the uh, than the Sineg. it does Ooh. have some oloroso sherry sherry uh, maturation, but it's you know it, it's regarded as well balanced. You'll get some vanilla biscuits, light fruit, and and of course the uh, the peat smoke. The this is not the cast strength version, but there are a number of cast strength versions out there. Whiskey Library mm-hmm. has put out a cast strength version that that become a little bit more floral. And so what Kilhoman does with their still and with their, their cuts uh, sort of lends itself to that. Yeah, I would say that that would be a characteristic that I would, I would, I would kind of connect these two Kilhomans that, we, that we've sampled so far is that kind of floral nose. Uh, you do get the vanilla, for yeah. sure. I get a decent, I, get, I think I get more smoke on this than the Seneg, I believe, like just subjectively, at least on the nose. Definitely yeah. a little bit heavier. And so this is the the Macro Bay is one of my my go tos. I, I absolutely love it, and it's um, it again it's at a price point. It's you know fifty dollars, which is not expensive at all for a, a bottle of quality whiskey. You know what I love that's coming through on the nose is just some apricot as this opens up. Yeah, I get like yeah. this like little piercing kind of like juicy apricot flourish. Right on the back end of the nose, it's almost like you've breathed in almost entirely, and then you just get this—you get past the vanilla, you get past the smoke, and you get this little, this little reward of apricot, which is cool. Yeah, it's it's very distinctive. It's very, I, th- I think it's very recognizable. Yeah, uh, and it, I can it's see certainly, that. You know, it's it, Kilhoman is interesting to me because again, it, it it is a family enterprise, and it's Anthony Wills who's the the sort of the patriarch, uh, and he has his four sons working with him, and it's it's really uh, quite interesting. And if you listen to an interview with James Wills, he has that British accent that's very similar to like a Hugh Grant. <laughs> so, you, you know, it's it's it it all comes across as as something very steeped in history and very steeped in culture and very right. steeped in sort of a very intense purpose with what they're trying to do with the mm-hmm. Kilhoman Farm Distillery. Right, a little uncanny too, uh, especially compared to like the Scottish accents. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love it. I love it. it. It's just listening to some of uh, again on this Spirit Guide Society podcast. Just you get some of these brand reps they come in. Uh, I actually, after my interview with Pedro, we had, who was it? I want to say it might've been, oh, it was, um, it was a a portfolio. It was, it wasn't an individual distillery, but they had a a Buna, Buna Uh, And just like, yeah, yeah, just uh, loved, loved hearing just some of the authentic pronunciations. It really does add to the experience. I, I, I think for me, it's just like you get, you know, you get more of that cultural side too, which is something I think sometimes in, in the U.S. we miss a little bit, especially yeah. with some of these Diageo brands where they have a lot of local brand reps. So you've right. got somebody from, you know, Annapolis, Maryland repping, you know, whatever. And it's like, yeah. ah, okay, I'm and glad to see you, but I'd be more glad to see somebody who sounded a little bit different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a lot of them do a great job. Uh, I know uh, Cherish Barley is a... Um, is a brand rep for Brooklotti who does a phenomenal job, a you know, high level of knowledge and a high level of enthusiasm, 
But then when you go see, for example, like a Stuart Buchanan, who's a brand ambassador for Ben Riach, Glendronach, etc., you know, what comes across is sort of that authenticity of his experience sort of growing up in that area. Right. And certainly with Isla, you know, Isla makes an interesting case because it's such a small island, because it's only 3,000 people, because most of the land is owned by non-resident landowners, mm-hmm. and because it's become sort of a Disneyland for Scotch enthusiasts who come over for Facial and come over for all the, you know, for all the different festivals and go do the tours. I think it, it puts sort of a strain on the authenticity of that culture. I think so too. But you know what, with this expression that we have right now, I would probably personally identify this as the most balanced that we've had so far. Uh, really, really kind of finessed, yeah. I think. Well, I, you know, I think that's a great point to make. And again, it's, it's in my mind, it is something that is enabled and supported by the smaller scale of the mm-hmm. Kilhoman distillery. Totally. And because there's presumably such a high attention to detail from the folks who are not just working there, but who are attentive to things like the barley, things like the, the, the mashing and the, and the milling and all the rest of the parts of the process uh, that in other distilleries may receive less attention just because of the scale of, yeah. of the enterprise. Yeah, this, I mean, this totally reminds me of like locally like a Lion Rum or a Catoctin Creek Rye where I'm just like, how did you manage to pull off something like this in less than five years or in less than 10 years or however long you've been making this craft spirit? Because I, yeah, if I could, if if I could point to this and call it my own, I think I could die happy. Yeah, like yep. the, the, it's just such an achievement in balance over sh- such a short period of time. That's like it's really astounding, and I think I think it's worth pointing out the age of the distillery and and the infrastructure behind it too, because I think yep. that means a lot. Yeah, especially when you have it on your palate. Right, right, right. Absolutely. I'm gonna grab a little extra water here. Perfect. Yeah, and so again, you know, with 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 Kilhoman coming online in, in roughly two thousand and five, sort of a, a sister distillery, at least in timing to Aaron, which is not that far away, uh, but came online. I want to say roughly nineteen ninety five, and and both of those distilleries are are doing things really well, really at a high level of quality, uh, and it shows. And it's remarkable given some of the struggles that some other uh, so called startups have had. Sure, sure, yeah, I couldn't agree more. So do we have any other marks that we want to hit? Maybe just one or two finishing ones, and then we can hit a couple quick lightning round questions here. Oh, and, sure. uh, well, I would, let's take a turn to the Arbeg Ugedal, which uh, we, we've had something from this distillery already, but uh, this yeah. is one of their core expressions that is, I think, universally beloved. People just love the, the Ugi. <laughs> the Ugi. That's fantastic. So I'll pour um, just a little bit for both and, of them. And is that, like, so uh, I think there's Irish whiskey, if i recalling this correctly, Uskebeck. I think that's, isn't that, is that a reference to the original name of like whiskey being like that water of life type yes. thing? Yeah, yeah, Uskebeck. Yeah. I don't know how to pronounce it, but yeah, yeah, that yeah, that is a re- so. But but Ugadal is so that the 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 name I think is a reference to I, I want to say the whirlpool that is off the, the coast of Isla. There's just a whirlpool chill in there. I, I believe Ugadal is 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 that whirlpool, but I'm not positive. But oh, I mean, if you <clears throat> have you noticed this? Yeah. 
that is a heavy you know i would i would say there's almost a sulfur note in there yeah it's medicinal now sulfur notes sometimes you know like you could you can go either way on the sulfur like sometimes with some fortified wine finishes the sulfur is an influence of the uh the, the sulfur treatment of those barrels sometimes oh, okay. so sometimes okay. it's regarded as a flaw right uh i, mean, I don't regard it as a flaw I well love, especially I coming sulfur. from isla Right, you know, it's it's kind of in that um, it's in that vicinity of the plasticky, rubbery, or iodiny kind of yeah. uh, aromas. Yeah. So I, I think it's totally something that you could expect to find in Isla. But sometimes, so if if you find it in a like an off-putting way, like uh, almost like I, this is the second time we're going to Trader Joe's, but uh, I think they have a mango, like a dried mango from Trader Joe's that's that's tr- that's a sulfur like treated with sulfur. Oh, interesting. And it's got like a it's very distinctive. So for me, peat, sulfur, all these things are, are really kind of uh, liquid forms of Vegemite, where the, uh. the, the world universally, I think, despises Vegemite. But if you get past that sort of initial shock of the taste of something that's so different, yeah. particularly for the American palate, it, it is phenomenal, and you become addicted to it very quickly. And, and this so, is like that vegetable salty spread from Australia. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so what people say about peat and about Isla is it's it's an acquired taste, but once you acquire it, you never let go of it. Yeah, it's a, it kind of like your first negroni. People almost universally despise their first negroni yeah. and then they they find themselves holding another negroni like a week later and they're like, "Wait, how, wait, wait, wait a minute. Why? How did this get in my hand?" Yeah. There's sure. a great concept flavor professor, good friend of mine Dan McCall who helped out with the uh, the tasting journal actually. He brought up this term called benign masochism and there's a, a hypothesis that we like it's kind of like the hot sauce phenomenon it's like we kind of like hurting ourselves in ways that we know aren't going to really cause like actual physical damage okay uh and it's a type of thrill seeking right and you can definitely kind of put whiskey whiskey enthusiasts in that thrill seeking category usually it's a a sensory thrill seeking as opposed to like skydiving well i'll buy pete as a as a a form of benign masochism yeah yeah because it's like yeah yeah again like sulfur it's like "Mm, give me that sulfur glade air no that's not a thing but yeah. in a whiskey, it's like can be really, really pleasant. Well, you know, it's it's funny to me because Ugarau is is sort of it's one of the core expressions of Art Bag, and yet tasting it so closely, I think we had one in between this and yep. the, and the drum. I almost prefer this to the drum, and I I like it a good bit. It's something that you know I would always have on my shelf. In terms of its makeup, it's um, it's about 90% ex-bourbon cast and only 10% ex-cherry, but that ex-cherry really kind of accents it. It puts that, that sort of yep. um, mark on it. And this reminds me a little bit more of the, the classic Ardbeg. Uh, it's, an, it's a 10-year, right? That's the, the So the, the Ugedal, I don't know what the age is, but I would assume that it's primarily made up of essentially what makes up the Ardbeg 10. Mm-hmm. with some additional maturation for right. the sherry. Because I get a very, like this reminds me of my bottle of Ardbeg 10, but you definitely get some more of those kind of raisiny qualities from, from the sherry. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's, you know, especially for with Ugedal, it's, it's all in the nose. Yeah. You know, this is one in particular that I could sit on a deck for a half an hour just yeah. nosing it with a, with a one ounce pour yep. and, and be content for that hour. Or that half hour. Yeah, it's really interesting, and I, I really do think that the Glencairn glasses help 
when you're doing like a nice scotch tasting, I, th- I think it's it's nice to have a, a slightly fluted glass where it really concentrates the the aromas, especially as they open up. Yeah, it it is. But you know, again, it's uh, you know, to me, whiskey is a social experience, and I've heard people say about tastings that whiskey, the pressure on whiskey is to be the the entertainment to be the focus you know if you're going to a tasting the whiskey really needs to shine and to make its mark and to hold people's attention right and and i disagree with that notion because okay. to me whiskey is it's it's not the television it's not the it's not the show it's the fire it's the hearth that we used mm. to sit around and have a conversation and connect with each other and so what we're doing here is we're gathering around the fire of the whiskey but having a conversation about what the whiskey is telling us and what we're telling each other, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so some of the best tastings that I've been to, the whiskey was sort of secondary to the insights, to the conversation, to the discussion, et cetera. Well, I think it's, I think what we're doing here is we're gathering, like the cool thing is we're gathering like almost like an aggregate of all of this by tasting through several different expressions that are doing a bunch of different stuff. We're kind of like, like you were talking about mean versus median before. It's like, we're we're kind of like trying to take an average here and identify like what each of these signatures is contributing to that average. And what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's a tough, it's a tough road to hope because they're all so different in their own way and they're different in terms of their production. They're different in terms of their flavor profile. They're different in terms of their intensity. But man, is this representative of Ardbeg? Yeah, it's fantastic. And, and I think Ardbeg does a phenomenal job with a largely non-age stated portfolio, yep. you know, aside from the 10 and they have the 20 something, et cetera, and they have some others. Uh, but it's, you know, with their non-age stated whiskeys, I, they're quietly just such a dominant distillery. Mm-hmm. And you know what I find? I, sometimes it's a little bit hard to maybe distinguish between like an Ardbeg or an Lafroig or... Sometimes even like a Talisker, even though Talisker is not on Isla, it's got right. some of those similar, like really. It has some of the coastal brine. notes. It has some of the salinity. It has it's a peated expression, although mm-hmm. lightly peated. I think roughly right. twenty ppm for again whatever that means. But so for me, Ardbeg, I get some bitterness to it, whereas Lafroig, I get more astringency. Okay. With the Ardbeg, I get a little bit more bitterness. Like it stays on the palate, especially the back of the palate, and I get a little bit of bitterness. I get, I would say, yeah. I don't know. I think that for me is the peat. Yeah. There's a slight distinction, but like, so I think I could, if you poured, I, I definitely could, if you poured me an Ardbeg, you said, said one of these was Ardbeg 10, one of these is Lafroy 10, I could totally tell you. So I'm 100% confident that you, you couldn't. Really? And yes. And and I say that because, again, I participated in this blind tasting. Recently. Well, I mean, it is a coin flip. So we'd have to we'd have to widen the field a little bit. Yeah. But coming into it, if again, if you strip away the label, if you strip away everything, but what you experience on your palate, you will experience things that you had not anticipated. You had never guessed. Yeah, and, sure. and it's tough to put a name on it. And I think that's frustrating to a lot of people because mm-hmm. once you've learned the production aspects of the process and once you've learned the ingredients and once you've learned what the final product tastes and, and smells like to confront the notion that you're not able to identify that in the absence of any other information is really humbling yeah it's like screaming into the void a little bit <laughs> yeah but it's okay because in my mind it's not about that it's about the experience about discovering something new and that's what happens every time you taste whiskey yeah that's the sort of zen problem but also the zen solution 
of of whiskey, right? Because like people who are listening to this, we're now like two hours in. If anyone has made it this far, they're like, these guys are just, this is the most niche thing ever. But you're going like, to edit it to just the phenomenal highlights. I'm right? sure. I'm sure. This might be a two-parter. We'll see. But like, like one of the things I might be like, wow, this is super niche. These guys, these guys must be like so well acquainted with all this stuff in a way that I could never be. But like the answer is like, yeah, it doesn't really super matter. Right. right? Uh, that's the truth. <laughs> it doesn't super matter, which, which is, can, can be frustrating, but it also just at the end of the day, it's, it saves, it saves whiskey. Whiskey is saved by the, like, like we, it's almost like a great reason to do all this research and to learn these things because it helps you have conversations, but in the end, the whiskey just stands for itself. Yeah. Yeah. So let me issue you a challenge. I know we're, we're itching to get to the lightning round, but yeah. let me pour from a bottle and tell you absolutely nothing about okay. it. Okay. Let's and see. And then why don't you tell me All right. about the bottle? Yeah, I will. I will. Here, I'm rinsing out a glass for you. I will turn, or is this one of the, uh, I'm, I, I'm not looking. I'm, I'm focusing on the glass, not the bottle here. This is as blind as I can be. Turning around now. Okay. And I'm pouring just a smidge a small schmeckle of this whiskey for you it is unnamed and unknown okay uh it went a little heavier than i intended so feel free to pour that out after you taste it okay okay ready to go safe okay all right so so this is so you're telling me nothing about this is it a whiskey this is a scotch this is a scotch this is a single malt and if you look at it it's it's a very light in color right I mean, not uncommonly. Like I've seen stuff with a similar color. All right, I'll tell you what I'm getting. So on the nose, definitely getting like a consistent, like a honeyed, a little bit of dried fruit on there. So this is one I, I get a little, I mean, I know what it is, obviously, but I get a little nail polish off of this. A little bit, a little bit of acetone. But not like aggressive, like it's not attacking Right. It's not like, it, it doesn't come off as a flaw, I guess. No. And that's something that you always have to ask, right? Like kind of similar with the sulfur note, like, is it a bug or is it a feature? Yeah. <laughs> Could be either. That depends on your perspective. But yeah. I, you know, I, I, I like this nose. I think it's, uh, I think it's a good nose. I think it's gentle. I get, I get a little bit of hay in the background. So like, whereas I think with one of the, uh, what was it, was it the Kilo, uh, the Kilhoman, uh, Sine, I, th- I think I might have got hay like pretty, pretty immediately. This one, the hay is a little bit more in the background. Yeah. And then, like I, I, I'll, I'll, I'd go so far as to classify this nose as light. It's a light nose. I kind of have to really, like, breathe in and assert myself to get some of the deeper, more honeyed or biscuity notes to it. And th- and the hay come like as you take like a deeper pull, you. Get, yeah, you definitely get some of the hay there. So, so I would how, say, how would you characterize the peat on this one? The peat? I mean, I'm I'm relatively inexperienced at PPM. Uh, I would say fairly light. I fairly mean, light my peat. experience my experience of the peat is fairly light. I, yeah. I don't know what that says about the PPM. I'm gonna take some I'm gonna take some palette because that might change my perspective on like peat, non-peat, how heavily peated it is. I definitely get more on the palate. More on the palate, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, I think overall this is a very enjoyable whiskey. I I don't like the nose on this. Did I just say I like the nose? I don't like the nose. It's, it's um, 
it's a little uh, tepid for me. Like it's a yeah, little. I think it's a little. Little. I, 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 this is one that I would say is a little bitter and a little astringent. And and I would say overall, I, I'm sort of disappointed with this one. Now yeah. you having described this one, I, 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 I would say it's a little bit disappointing too. So go, Larry. We are do you the ready reveal. for the, for I'm the ready. big reveal? Let's seal. So this is from a, a great distillery, Ben Riach. But it is okay. a you know this is a, a, a Speyside distillery. So this is Speyside peat or mainland peat. Yeah, it's it, intensely peated burning moss. This is a thirty dollar bottle of whiskey. Okay. So this is sort of like their entry level kind of splashy advertising. The the listeners can't see, but there's flames on the yeah. label. It's a little ridiculous. Yeah. But it's interesting to try it blind and to try to deconstruct what are you getting out of it. And naturally, right. you know, you have a sophisticated palate, and so you said, you know, I'm a little little disappointed in this one. Yeah, I mean, I try not to, like when you see a light color and when you get a nose that is a little bit lighter, I try not to like automatically assume the palette is gonna be underwhelming, but this right. one, I think you get, how would I describe this? Let me take another sip and I think I could probably describe to listeners what the palette, like what about the palette to me indicates like, man, I'm not paying more than 40 bucks for this bottle, certainly, right, right, if that. I think it's the mainland peat. Yeah. I think it's like, like this tastes a little bit more like some of the Highland styles I've had. Sure, sure. In terms of the peat profile. It's got, it's got like a, a, a darker, so like those iodine notes and those, those briny notes give a little bit of levity to the Isla expressions that I think is one of the things that really hooks people, right? Because they're a little bit bombastic compared to some other scotches that are that are smoother, a little bit more highly polished with those cask finishes in, in some instances. But that lightness, that, that little uptick, it's almost like a little accent on the end of the whiskey. I think that's what hooks people about Isla sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just not getting that with this. No, and the other thing about this, being a non-age stated whiskey, and being as light in color as it is, is you could imagine this might be a four to five year old. You know, this mm-hmm. might be in the area of Hepburn's Choice, which has made its name on releasing sort of six to eight-year-old whiskeys, that what you're getting is not necessarily a deficiency in the peat, but a deficiency in the fact that it hasn't reached full maturation. Yeah, and see, so I'm looking at this label. It says non-chill filtered natural color. Right. And to me, I would almost rather have this chill filtered and be at a lower proof with a little bit more age on it. Yeah, yeah. Because what I get from the palate is like it, it's hot. It's it's like still in my throat right now. It's still yeah. got a little of that throat burn. Right. And that throat burn with the like mainland peat to me is just like that's why I don't don't do too many like Highland single malts. It's like yeah. it's a little boring to me. But if you go to Schneider's and you've said that you do go to Schneider's, one bottle if you happen to find some some extra dollars in your pocket, the Balachin, the Edgardar Balachin Ten is a $60 bottle at Schneider's. I've had, I've had it. It's, it's quite good. It is. I love it. And it, it's such a different peat than Isla, but in a very enjoyable way. It's heavy on the rubber, yep. heavy on the burnt rubber, uh, not as much on, on the brine. And it's it's very interesting. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's a distillery that puts out a, a pretty phenomenal product. Yeah, I actually got that from one of my, my co-founders for a Christmas present. And uh, we, we, had, we we enjoyed it together. And, oh, and that was, awesome. That was, yeah, it was nice. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. It's a good okay. it's a good bottle. Yeah, it's, it's, 
it's like it's my my neighborhood spot so yeah i mean i don't like going in there because i you know so i work across the street at the uh, postal square building across okay. from union station yeah great so when i go into snyder's you know it's narrow corridors or narrow aisles and i have you know my bag with me and it's it's kind of always packed in there so i feel oh, like yeah. i'm gonna knock something over yeah, you feel like you're gonna cause some serious damage cause some damage and all yeah. the good a lot of the good stuff is behind the counter so then i'm sure hearing over the counter so looking at you know what they have in uh in 375 etc so. yeah exactly cool well this was this was amazing i really like that as like a, a good little counterpoint to like all the islas we've tasted because it just goes to show you know like a couple things i think give yourself permission if you're doing a comparative tasting give yourself permission to like or like not like at least one thing yeah. it's okay and you yeah. shouldn't look to not like like something but give yourself permission to be like well man, I really had to huff and puff to get anything off that nose. Or like, I was a little underwhelmed by that peat profile. Right. That's right. okay because that gives you your own internal landscape of of what you like and what you don't like. And you got to have a little bit of the not the dislikes to, to make the, you know, to, to serve as a counterpoint or a foil to that stuff you really like. Because when somebody asks you, well, what do you like so much about Isla? You got to have something. Yeah. Right. For me, it's that little accent, that little briny note right. that, that elevates the flavor. It's almost like um, the the cocktail comparison I would draw is like the martini. Yeah. You can't have a martini without a lemon twist, right? Because right. it's missing something fundamentally. And so for me, like that's what this this last that this Ben Riac was was missing was it was missing that little bit of expressed that yeah. that that lifting element to it. So yeah, I, I think this is a product that was put out that was perhaps lacking in substance and tried to make up for it in the label. So. Ah, labels. Another topic for another another podcast. We actually, you're probably a really good person. We should have a label panel right. at some point. Yeah, that would be really fascinating because there's so much to get into with labeling and branding. Yeah, and that, yeah. But. And I don't have a Kulila here, but Kulila is my absolute favorite label of all. The it's very simple. It's very simple. It's very clear. It's very clean. It's very mm -hmm. stenciled. It's uh, you know, yeah, there's everything, stenciled. everything to love about it. It yeah. just there's no. It, it doesn't go over the top in any way possible. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very, um, very clean. I, I like it. it. Looks, it looks. I find myself reaching for it on the shelf when I have no intention of buying it. Right. Just because I want to hold it. <laughs> and that's not the case with this. No, this is this no, is no. this is like a magazine that, spread. It's like a Jeff from nineteen. 97 yeah it's a fire and yeah the, i'll try and snap a picture i brought a camera so I'll, so we'll uh we'll we'll put this this criticism uh out to the internet and if if it comes back on me then so be it but i just want to be clear that ben Riak is a great distillery oh sure yes yeah. one particular expression absolutely maybe. they have a lot of great expressions so do you want to do some quick lightning yeah round let's questions? just do some quick lightning round questions. beautiful all right. So as you know, you've been, seems like you've been listening to the podcast. Uh, these are questions that we ask all our guests and uh, a lot of people really love this because it kind of gives, gives a little bit of personality to, to the person that we've been interviewing aside from the topic at hand, which, which is very specific in our case. So question one is what's your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something you've been more recently getting into? Well, I'll be honest that I'm not the biggest cocktail aficionado, but I have been getting more into cocktails recently. And for me in particular, the old fashioned is sort of my go-to cocktail because I feel that it highlights and accentuates the whiskey in ways that are new, uh, aside from sort of drinking whiskey meat. Yeah, you learn something about the whiskey every time you make an old fashioned. Yeah. 
and then as you modify like anything about it just like the number of like you could get super granular with what you're modifying and it's it's like um it's it's a great cocktail to return to for both technique and for the ingredients because it teaches you something every time you make it, it doesn't matter if you're making the same old fashioned that you made last night or if you're making a vastly different one you learn something if you're paying attention yeah 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 for absolutely sure. and it, it has a sort of simplicity of ingredients that that i like sure so with old-fashioned people i like to ask are you a sugar cube muddler are you a simple syrup person what's a your sugar cube for sugar sure cube? yeah i like to see it you like, know, a, like a dominoes like a yeah. domino yeah fantastic yeah because what i like about just the regular dominoes kind of a local plug actually sure, with, baltimore. Uh, with baltimore right baltimore palmer but yeah, you can see the bit like it gives you a really good indication of the bitters because you, yeah. you soak it, soak it with the bitters. And then, uh, yeah, I, I like the sugar cube as well. When I make an old fashioned and I take I've got a nice a muddler with like a flat head. Right. And I really get in there. I put like maybe 10 to 20 mls of water in there with okay. it. And I sit there, and I kind of grind like mortar and pestle style and kind yeah. of get that dis- dissolving working. Right. I find that really helps. So interesting. Very cool. So if you were a cocktail tool or ingredient, what would you be and why? Well, so I have a two-part answer to this question. So my first response is that I would be a muddler. And I, I don't say that pejoratively, but I, you know, I've, I've been accused of being sort of a bull in the china shop before, the, most, mostly by my the, father-in-law. The, the, thus your fear of, <laughs> right. uh, of being in Schneider's with a backpack. Yeah, yeah there you go. Right. So, so, but I, I do like to mix things together and I like to look at interaction effects. And, and, and so, and maybe sometimes I meddle and maybe sometimes I, I muddy up the water. And so, you know, I'm a muddler. Okay. Okay. But if I had to say something else, I would, I would say maybe a garnish because I can be sort of situationally introverted and I feel like garnishes are kind of, you know, little standoffish. Like they're they a little fussy. Yeah. They don't necessarily want to get in the water. So that's yeah. uh yeah, and it's funny too because like when you get a cocktail where the garnish interferes a little bit, you're like, it's 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 like one of those. It's like hitting your head on something that's been in your house for yeah. years. Yeah, like 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 suddenly like hitting your head or stubbing your toe on something. You're like, what? like this has never been a problem before. Like, what are you doing? Right. Yeah, that is that's interesting. A garnish. Sometimes with like these these citrus peel garnishes, I was recently trying to impress my mother-in-law. Right. And so I made her this. I made her this highball cocktail with a little bit of vodka, a little bit of just some some lavender bitters and some um, some sparkling water and just like kind of a very simple cocktail. But I went all out and I like basically took a channel knife to a lemon <laughs> and I peel a lemon or a lime and I peeled like the entire lemon or lime and I twisted it up and I made this like ornate like garnish that was like hanging over the glass and she was like, what is this? <laughs> But yeah, so interesting. A garnish. I like it. If you could have a cocktail with anybody, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? What would you talk about? Just paint us a picture. So this was a difficult question for me to answer because you said if I could sit with anyone, meet with anyone, yeah, anyone, past or present. Anybody. No rules. Who would it be? No yeah. rules. And to me, the answer is obvious. And I, I'm surprised that more people don't have this response, but I haven't heard anyone with this response. And obviously it would be me. I, yeah. I would go back and I would talk to myself. Maybe it's 17 years old where things started to kind of go down a certain path. Okay. And, and I, would, I would ask myself some questions and I would 
see what I was thinking, why I was thinking the way I was. And I would give some advice about health and about habits and about uh, what path to follow. Sure. And, and I think that would be a great conversation to have. I think that me and myself would get along very well. But what would you drink with your 17-year-old self? Well, I, I would certainly... And this is a hypothetical obvious, situation. Yeah, I mean, Obviously, it's, you're it's, not endorsing it, drinking it, for minors. No, we have to say this no. because this is a podcast. This is like the we're not doctors thing. Right, right. Okay, my 18-year-old self. So I would absolutely... <clears throat> drink scotch and bourbon with my 18 year old self in the late 80s because what a great time to gain an appreciation for scotch and bourbon and perhaps to start buying up some great expressions that are available at phenomenal prices totally through the 90s right before the boom I mean, I'm not talking like Marty McFly type stuff, but, you know, yeah, just... But it's it's kind of going down that road a little bit, right? Like going right. back in time, buying Apple stock or something like that? No, but just, you know, having some great... What if I had some great whiskey on the shelf that I picked up in 1987 when yeah. it was, you know, $25 yeah, for totally. a, you know, 30-year-old, you know... Yeah, something crazy. Something I mean, insane. you could imagine the possibilities. Ex- yes. Of knowing yes. what you know now in 1987. Yeah. The world would be your oyster. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's a great answer, and it's funny. I mean, it's not just about that. I mean, it's health, too. I mean, I would not smoke cigarettes, and I would exercise more, and I would get more sleep and focus more at school, but, you know. Yeah, you know, it's a good conversation to have, though. I think... I think when we did the lightning round, I think uh, Jamie from Lion Distilling uh, actually had that answer. Oh, great. And okay. I th- but I don't know if it was past self. I think it might have been future self. Oh, what happens? Yes. Yeah, right? Like this, that may even be better. Yeah, yeah, the flip side of that sandwich. Yeah. And then I really liked um, one of the, and this is local, so you should probably check them out, Saint-Foy Distilling in Hyattsville. Oh, awesome. Um, Nate, who's the distiller there, uh, wanted to go back and um, and and let his great or great-great-grandfather in Holland uh, taste his Holland's gin. Wow. Now, is that is, in, in Sohi? Uh, it's, it's in, um, I was just in Sohi the other day. I didn't know it was a thing. It's it, South Hydesville. It's in, Franklin's. um, it's right across the street from Franklin's. Oh, okay. So yeah. it's so you were there. Yeah. Yeah. S O H H Y. Yeah. It's their tag. Oh, gotcha. Right. Gotcha, right, gotcha. right. Yeah. So, yeah. so great stuff. But yeah, I, I like the, I like the family or the, like the, the, the meta personal connection of, yeah. of that sort of thing. Totally. Yeah. I will definitely check them out. Getting into some of the advice here, we've just taken a deep ass dive on scotch, like deep, deep, sort of rabbit holy. I'm like we we actually held up really well in terms of like not getting not getting uh, too too uh, heavy on the sauce here. But um, if you had to recommend any books on scotch or whiskey in general, are there any books that were useful to you as you as you learned? Well, there were two in particular. I'd mention uh, Lou Bryson's Tasting Whiskey and also Heather Green's Whiskey Distilled. And I mentioned those because they, they kind of strike a really nice balance between being very engaging, very approachable. It, they're page turners, but at the same time, they provide solid information that's usable about whiskey. The problem with living in today's day and age is that the utility of books in that area sort of maybe starts to take a backseat to the availability of information that's online and in on reddit or on facebook sure. or except you know any in any number of different avenues but certainly i would recommend if somebody is interested in the vernacular in the in the terms and the expressions in the makeup of, of japanese versus irish versus scotch versus bourbon yeah those are two great books to to start with so again it's lou bryson's tasting whiskey and heather green's whiskey distilled one other note that i'd make about lou bryson is he is similar to 
Fred Minnick uh, in, in the bourbon world, he's very active in the, the whiskey scene. And so you can read his book and then still interact with him on social media, very down to earth and still very, very engaged. I think he's at Jack Rose maybe two or three times a year for okay. a variety of different events. Yeah. And I think that lends uh, a sort of immediacy to the words that are on the paper that the author is, is not just somebody in an ivory tower kind of writing about a subject, but someone who's steeped in that world. Definitely walking the walk for sure. Uh, so we'll link to those in the show notes uh, over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast so that anybody who's listening to this can and uh, go and click a link and find out more about that book, browse the table of contents, et cetera. So related to the book advice, as somebody who is like right now, I mean, like you are engaged in multiple different kind of whiskey societies and you've got a great collection here. And uh, by the way, thank you. I don't think I've thanked you for for sharing that with, with me oh, tonight. Oh, absolutely. If somebody is listening to this and like, damn, that's aspirational to me. Like, what advice would you give for somebody who's looking to get into whiskey in a, in a deeper way than perhaps they have so far? My number one immediate response would be don't go it alone. You know, there's so many great groups out there and, and, and there's no, you know, there, it's enjoyable to sit and have a drink, certainly at home or what have you. But there, there's so much about the social experience about whiskey. There's so much about the conversations that happen uh, over a whiskey. There's so much about the meeting with other people and talking to them that I think enriches the experience and is something that, that really elevates the value of the experience overall to everyone. I would remind people that there's no right or wrong way to drink whiskey. People tend to get hung up about the ice thing. I don't. I mean, it doesn't matter. You paid for it. You drink it the way you want to drink it. Don't let anybody tell you how you should. Yeah, whiskey um, bullies are the almost the worst. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's 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 a, it's a personal experience. So do yeah. it the way you know you paid for it. Do it the way that you want to do it. Uh, but you know, by all means, join join a club. You know, if you're no matter where you are, whether you're in Los Angeles, Chicago, Alabama, Kansas, there is a group of people drinking whiskey somewhere near you. Find them, hang out with them, and you'll be able to try whiskeys that maybe are outside of your price range because people share, maybe that are inaccessible to you because they recently traveled and they came through travel retail right. and they got something great that, wow, you're excited about. And I think that is something that really opens up a lot of doors. Totally, totally. And I think this is a great spot for us to have you plug the DC Isla Scotch Society and any of the other groups that you're a part of. I think I found this because it was a recommended group for me on Facebook. Yeah. I'm not a big Facebook guy. I don't spend yeah. a whole lot of time there, but I was like, wait a minute. Right. There's a DC Isla Scotch Society. I think I'd had a couple drinks one night yeah. and I was just browsing social media before bed and I was like, there is no way that I am not requesting to join this group because it's a yeah. closed group, right? But right. but it's just moderated and you yeah. just have to request. I don't think we have any questions either. You just ask to join and you're, yeah. and you're basically added. So yeah, thank you for mentioning that. I absolutely recommend people join Isla Scotch Society uh, of Washington, D.C. on Facebook. Come to one of our events. Uh, I may have mentioned earlier, we, we are having an event tomorrow night, but I, I think uh, it's, it's, it's full in terms of the number of seats. But our next event is actually in April, and okay. we're doing a Game of Thrones tasting of all the Diageo expressions that were released. And we're doing that in conjunction with the uh, premiere of the final season ah, of cool. Game of Thrones. So Very that's cool. kind of a neat thing. And then in the summer, we'll, we'll have something else. And we always have a Burns night. So it's a lot of fun. But, you know, especially if you're in DC, there's such a great community here. Harvey Fry, 
affiliated with Jack Rose uh, in DC comes to a number of our events. He recently came to a uh, an event that was oriented around the art of blending, and mm. so he brought some of his own personal brand blends oh, from cool. from his stash. So it's it's a, a really neat way to kind of open some doors into an arena that may not be visible. Yeah, fantastic. And um, you know, this is not. Uh, it seems like a big step into the deep end for somebody who's not a part of one of these groups already. Um, but I can I can tell you that, like, when there's a group of people, there's gonna be somebody who takes you under their wing the first yeah. night. All you got to do, and, and like, think about it this way. Like you're you're a little nervous. You're going to a place where there's going to be social lubricant. So yeah, it's yeah, like absolutely. it greases the wheels, and and these these types of things, even for the uninitiated, tend to be like super super positive. And I will say, I mean, I'm biased, but I will say that Scotch people are good people. <laughs> you know, I I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And uh, I think that's a great place to wrap this up. So Adam. Thank you again. We're going to put links to all this stuff on the show notes page. And um, just thank you for opening your home, your, your collection, and your insights to us. Awesome. Thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, Drams and PD Insights courtesy of Adam Safir, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2019.